0: Hey, everyone. and welcome back to I Just Blank Now What the podcast. It's Jessica Stevens here, your host. Hope you are all having a beautiful Wednesday and are really enjoying this spring weather that has finally started to blossom here in Toronto. Thank you so much to all of our new listeners for tuning in uh, from wherever you may be. So grateful that our audience is expanding to all corners of the world and that these amazing stories from people are reaching all of you out there on the airwaves. So without further ado, we're going to get into this week's episode, which is, as always, so inspiring and so wonderful. And I'm just so grateful for all my guests for coming on the show and really opening up their hearts and sharing these stories that are not always easy to share. And this week is no different. My guest is Deborah Fletcher, and she's going to be sharing her I just became a special needs mom story. So yes, becoming a mother for the first time, definitely a challenge, but becoming a mom to a special needs kid, your first go around as a new mom, just feels like Mount Everest. So Deb is going to be sharing her story of what that was like for her and her experience. It's just a true inspiration to hear what she has to share about being a mom, but also being a mom to somebody with special needs and the love and the joy and the lessons that brings um, you when there's somebody else who really depends on you for almost everything in their life. So without further ado, here's a little bit about Deb. Deb is an adult educator, author, speaker, and mom of twin daughters. She also works as a realtor, which helps to support her obsession with snooping through other people's homes. 22 years ago, she gave birth to identical girls alike in every way, except one was born with a physical disability. She began her journey learning how to care and advocate for her daughter and starting her career as an entrepreneur. So without further ado, let's get to the now what. blank, now what stories, so we can all learn from their transformational lessons to help us all answer that lifelong and often paralyzing question, now what? Well, hello, Deborah. Hello, yourself. So good to see you. Thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited about our conversation today because I think your story is probably more common than people might realize. And you're going to be sharing, I just became a special needs mom. Now what? I know special needs is a little bit of a broad category, and that could mean a lot of different things for a lot of different kids. So I'm really excited for you to To unpack your story and share what that looked like and meant for you. So, before we do that though, why don't you tell a little bit about you? Who's Deborah other than being a mom? Tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are.
1: Yeah, there's a little bit more than just being a mom, right? Sometimes I forget that. (laughs) But I actually had my kids kind of late. So, I got a chance to build my career and get established in my community. So I live in Toronto and I live in a really, really fun neighborhood that is sort of everybody knows each other and there's a real sense of community. So I had this wonderful job in a human resources department for a large Canadian company. My job was doing training and development. So I was a facilitator of leadership training programs. And I loved my job. I loved my team. I loved what we were doing. We were part of a sort of a larger organizational development department within the organization. And it was something that I really enjoyed and found very fulfilling. So I actually met my now ex-husband, the father of my babies at that organization, which you're not supposed to do, but you know. We did it anyway. I also dated somebody at work at one point. You do? Oh, it's so bad. They say it's so bad. But you know what? Everybody was really, we kept it a secret for a year, you know, that we were dating. And then, you know, when we got married and we weren't in the same department, like it wasn't as if he was my boss or something, which Mm -hmm. would have been bad, or I was his boss. And then this is a bit too much information, but during our sort of December holiday slash Christmas party, which was a huge event at the organization. One year we won a door prize. We won the door prize. It was $500. And I guess we were celebrating because my doctor said that that was the day of conception. I love the backstory, the story behind the story.
0: (laughs) All right. Well, like let's fast forward nine months from that holiday
1: party and tell me, you know, you had twins. Yeah. So it wasn't quite 9 months. It just sort of happened. It was not an intentional conception, but that's how it happens sometimes. And so I was not feeling one, you know, very well one day and went, "Huh. Something wrong." So anyway, my ex-husband had two brothers. His brother has six boys, so I thought I was carrying a boy, of course, you know. And so I was talking to him and I was calling him Billy Bob and You know, I was really looking forward to meeting them. And I went for the first ultrasound at 18 weeks. And the ultrasound technician said, so did your doctor say anything to you about twins? And I said, no. And she said, well, there are two in there. So I went hysterical. And then I said, well, what are they? Because I probably wouldn't have asked, but you know what? It was a big enough surprise having two. And she said, oh, it's two girls. So there I've been talking to this little boy and calling him Billy Bob. And I say to them now that they must've been in there going, who's she talking to? You know, (laughs) what's going on in here? So they're identical and I'm very efficient. I only used up one egg and the egg ended up splitting a little later than it should. So they were actually joined by blood vessels, which is not supposed to happen. If the, egg separates even later than their conjoined twins. They could be conjoined twins. Because they were joined by blood vessels, what happens is one twin pushes blood to the other one, which is not good because the one that's getting blown up could experience some heart problems and, and other things. So I was having an ultrasound every week and finally we passed, you know, what was it? The 24 week or the 26 week mark. And I thought, oh, it's all good now no longer need to worry. And then actually at 30 weeks, one of them, the water broke and I woke up in the morning and yeah, my water had broken. So we went to the hospital and they said, well, we can keep you here. Cause just one of them, one of them's water broke and we can keep you here. Like you just have to lie down for two weeks. I said, Oh, okay, that's fine. I mean, obviously what I'm going to argue. No, I want to go home. And I actually went into labor that night. So they were born at 30 weeks. They had to go into the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit. And they were in there for six weeks, three days and 12 hours. They lived there. And so they were different sizes, because, even though they're identical, but one was pushing blood to the other one. And so the protocol is to give babies an ultrasound on their brains when they're premature. And so at three and a half weeks, We got the news that one of them had scarring or brain damage, actually, just, you know, is basically what it was. Some damage that was in the, they said it was in the area where gross motor development is, but they had no idea like, you know, how it would all turn out or or anything else. So we were devastated. I remember. We got the news and we were both, you know, crying and then we were crying on them and they were asleep because, you know, they weren't even supposed to be born yet. So they were, they just slept like 24 hours a day. They were like kittens, right? And the next day I went home, I had to grab some stuff and then I had to run to the store and I was walking down the sidewalk and I saw a father and daughter walking down the sidewalk and the daughter had a disability. And so she was kind of limping. And the father was supporting her, but she wasn't like a, like she'd broken her leg, like it was a disability. And when I got past them, I burst into tears. So there I was thinking that my baby would, you know, have a limb or, you know, some sort of minor disability. And little did I know that that would have been, that would have been amazing, actually, (laughs) if that's all it was. Because when they were six months old, we went and had sort of an overall assessment By a doctor, like sort of an official, you know, developmental assessment. And that's when they said she's actually severely disabled, like severely. So, what was interesting to me was that I mean, we were devastated at three and a half weeks. Six months later, we get this diagnosis, but we still didn't know how it would impact her. And I'm glad I didn't because I called it the grief that keeps on giving because. You know, it was sort of like in stages, like we didn't know that she would never talk or eat solid food until she was two. You know, she had her first seizure at four. She got the G-tube put in, which is how she eats. She only eats liquid formula. We had that put in when she was 10. You know, we didn't know that she would wear diapers for the rest of her life until she was maybe three. It's not like at the beginning they said, this is the ultimate, like this is the end And so that was actually kind of good. You know, you had hope and you had this sort of uh, timeline, which sounds kind of weird, but so it was these different sort of grief milestones. But in between that, you know, you've got these two babies and they're lots of fun. And so it it was interesting for me to look back and reflect on, okay, how did I stay happy and positive? That first year was just an absolute write-off. Like it was it was just ridiculous and uh, like so hard and so much work and yet little moments of joy, right? Of course, but little like tragic moments too of, of, of your sadness. So anyway, so that's how it all started and 22 years later is how it's going. Wow. So
0: what are your daughter's names? Emma and Quinn. Emma and Quinn. And so one of your twins is fully- yeah. okay, a normal, 22 year old, fully functional and her sister, do you now know, 22 years later, what her condition is? Because obviously, you said you found out like little bit by bit by bit, you know, when did you know, for sure what her
1: disability was? We actually learned at that six month appointment. and. Lots of families don't find out for a long, long time. So I actually consider myself really lucky in that sense. We were told that she had uh, cerebral palsy. So it's spastic quadriplegia, which means all four limbs are involved. So she has no fine motor, no gross motor skills. So she uses a wheelchair and she's nonverbal. So she communicates with a, a device that she can use. So that's the diagnosis, cerebral palsy. And so they're identical twins, right? So they're very, they're very close. The first time they had a fight, they were five, I think, five or six. And it was the most exciting thing I had ever witnessed. I was so happy. And it was, it was Quinn, who's the one with disabilities. She was bugging her sister, like on purpose, which just, like I was the happiest mom. And unfortunately, you know, her sister, she was pissed off, right? Like this is her regular sister who's bugging her. And she didn't quite have the same way of looking at it that I, that I did as something that was a milestone good. moment for her. As it yeah, was. No, no, she was just like, mom, send her to her room so they've got this amazing you know relationship of course because identical twins usually do they usually are quite close I think just the identical twins that I've known in my life have been so that's all I have to go on so yeah very interesting right wow
0: so was Quinn the twin that was pushing the blood or receiving the blood she was the one that was receiving okay so she wasn't getting enough blood flow, I guess, from you, which was triggered this cerebral palsy. Okay.
1: Yeah. It actually probably happened during the birth. So yeah, those, these things happen, right? It was a deprivation of oxygen, right? So the brain gets deprived of oxygen. And so this scarring happens. So you now have this diagnosis. You
0: now know you have these two beautiful girls, identical, but very unique. You're probably yeah. one of the few moms with identical twins who have very, very, very different children. Yeah. You know what? True. How did you navigate this life as a mom of twins? Because you said you weren't expecting that,
1: but now one of your twins being special needs, what was that like for you? Yeah. Those first few years were difficult emotionally. Well, physically, just everything, you know, it was just it was crazy because my daughter, Quinn, she needed to be held and consoled like 24 hours a day. And, but there's another baby there too, right? So I needed a lot of help actually, but when they were babies, they were the same. And then Emma started to reach those markers, you know, she sat and then, you know, when she was over a year old, she started walking and those moments were difficult for me you know, I remember when she took her first steps, she sort of walked into my arms and I just swooped her up and I was so happy. And then I had to hand her to my ex, my husband and Steve, I had to hand her to her dad and like, leave the room, cry, come back in, you know, to continue being happy for her because I was sad for her sister at the same time. So eventually what happens is, you know, you just get used to that. And it's almost like, I've really looked at how we as humans address these kinds of things and what control we have and what control we don't have. Right. And for the first, I'm going to say for the first four years, I was just allowing whatever happened to me to, to happen to me. And, you know, I had no sort of control over my emotions whatsoever. And so I experienced a lot of sadness along with a lot of just the regular, you know, fun moments too, because both their dad and I, you know, we've got a good sense of humor and there was always music in the house and we made it our mission for both of their lives to be really great lives, you know, vacations and everything. And so I didn't really sort of start to get a handle on being able to Find the perspective to look at them and my life and to feel really sort of positive and really blessed by this whole situation, probably until they're about three or four. And so the story that I was stuck in my mind is we live in this neighborhood where there's tons of strollers everywhere. Like you cannot walk down the street and not see 30 strollers in a block. You know, it's just crazy. We'd be walking down this main street, and if a double stroller, started coming towards me I would look in the stroller and this is when my girls were like you know one two and three years old around then so I'd look in this double stroller and if it was just you know siblings like a one-year-old and a three-year-old I'd just be like okay cool but if there was a set of twins in there for some reason I would just like stick this knife sort of right at my heart and if it was a set and this is rare, but if it was a set of like identical twin girls, I just plunged that knife right in and it was excruciating, but I did it to myself. So one day I'm walking down the street with them and I see a double stroller coming my way. And this is after, you know, like a couple of years of doing this because they're now probably three years old, three or four years old. And this voice in my head said, just don't look, just don't, just do don't look in the stroller. And so I didn't. And the stroller just passed me by. And I smiled and I even laughed out loud. Like I really remember, I remember it so clearly. And I thought, oh my gosh, there's no pain. Like my day is still bright and cheerful. I'm walking down the sidewalk with my girls. And so it was a powerful moment for me because I recognized that I don't have to look in those strollers, I don't have to focus on something that will make me feel bad or sad. And it's not denial. You know, it's just, I can choose, I can choose to not look, you know, it's like poking your sore tooth with your tongue, right? Like you've got a choice, you don't have to hurt yourself. So that was a really sort of a a moment that there's a real, you know, sort of before and after. And I still use that, that just don't look, because those were the words that I heard. It was me who said it, that just some sort of evolved version of me. But I still use that in any kind of situation, because we've all got the choice on what to focus on, right? Because what we focus on is going to impact how we feel and our level of, of happiness in general. Wow, what a
0: profound, tiny moment. I know, isn't that crazy? It was such a teeny weeny moment. Yeah, yeah. But, but what I love about it is that it illustrates so well that saying of, comparison
1: is the thief of joy. Oh my goodness, it right. really is. And you know, there was a time when my girls were small. I can't remember in what setting this would have been if I was like at a baby shower or what. Anyway, so they were maybe a couple years old, and this new mom was like devastated that her baby had cradle cap. Do you know what that is? I think so. It's like it's like a rash. A rash on, on the head. head. Yeah. And I mean, she was devastated. And I had to get up and leave the room because I couldn't handle that juxtaposition. So later on in my life, as I sort of grew up, and matured, and really just allowed perspective in, you know, you sort of get to this point where that sort of thing would no longer bother me, right? I mean, I now have empathy for the fact that she's a new mom, this is something that was really concerning to her, you know, and I mean, mean, and I, I have absolute empathy for that. And, but back then, in that those first couple years, it was a really vulnerable time for me. And so that comparison, like you say, you know, it was just like, I just couldn't handle it. At the same time, I had a lot of family support and I started to get to know other families of kids like Quinn. And so those families that I met back then, we're still in each other's lives. And, you know, one family I met, their son is a year older and he and Quinn went to the prom together. And my life is that much richer for having known all of those people. And so that comparison thing, when I'm with those families, obviously, we're all sort of on the same playing field, right? It's just really comfortable. But so the challenges then in life is then, you know, in my case, when I'm with other families with perfectly healthy children, how I can navigate that without feeling any kind of sadness, any kind of feeling of a lesser than or envy or those kinds of feelings. And I mean, I think we all have to do that. Right. You know, as I said, I'm divorced. So I, you know, look at intact families in that same way. I look at them and, you know, I can choose to look at them and feel sad, or I can choose to look at them and think what a beautiful family. Right. And it's really that's simple. And I know I'm sort of oversimplifying it, but to me, it really is. And so I started to really look at, okay, what are the things that are helping me to feel good and to feel, you know, just joy and happiness. And I mean, just the regular, you know, emotions, because I've got this sort of layer of grief running through me too. Right. And I realized that, you know what, that's never going to go away. It's a very, very small, piece of me compared to what it was when they were first born. And, you know, I know all of the parents that are in my community that have kids with with any kind of difference, whether it's special needs, whether it's physical, developmental, medical, mental health wise. I mean, there is that sort of grieving piece at the beginning, but then, you know, we embrace them and we're just so thrilled with every little progress that they make. And we just celebrate them. And there's a certain segment of the population, like myself and some of my better friends, we also laugh at them, like we laugh at our circumstances, (laughs) sounds mean, but we laugh at the circumstances that we find ourselves in with them, right? And so there's that sort of piece that is kind of special to us too, and kind of unique to us. I mean, everybody laughs at their kids. But yeah, so I started to look at sort of what it was that I was doing and looking around and saying, okay, how do other people navigate challenges or, you know, grief situations? And something that I'd always thought of was my dad, who when he was 46, he had a heart attack and a stroke and he survived, but he was never able to work again. So he had to quit the job, the career that he loved. And You know, that meant giving up all his friends that he saw every day at work. And physically, he recovered. He actually lost his speech, but he got that back within about two years. And there was always kind of a little stroke accent after that, for the most part. But physically, he was fine. Like He made a full recovery, but his mental processing was impacted. So he wasn't able to work again. But I watched him and how he went through what he went through, which would have been devastating to a man at that age, right? To to a, so a person at that age. In the prime of his life, right? Prime of his life. And he managed to live, so he lived until he was 82, and he managed to live for the rest of his life with just absolute amazing attitude. And he chose to live that way, right? Like just grace, and joy and love and he has an amazing sense of humor so he was like my role model for how to navigate grief and hardship and disappointment and i mean cuz that's life right we're all going to run into some sort of you know whether it's something big or small or all the little ones in between i really sort of looked to him as that role model and the the key to it what i focused on was that he decided to live his life with this positive attitude right it was a choice you know he got up every day like he had nowhere to go like he wasn't working got up every day shaved showered dressed put on his aftershave you know he was involved in his community and he golfed and and it was interesting when his friends all started retiring like when they all turned 65 it kind of leveled the playing field you know what I mean it was kind of like then they were all old together and, you know, and uh, had a little but, bit of a head start on the life of a retiree. Right. Right. Yeah. So that was sort of my role model. So I was kind of like looking at him and then, you know, a lot of my friends have gone through a lot of things in their lives that, you know, they would never have thought. I mean, I guess a lot of it is that it's the unexpected stuff too. Right. So I have these friends and I thought, you know why don't i interview them so i interviewed four friends and all completely different stories completely different experiences in terms of grief hardship that they'd gone through and it was really interesting because out of that i saw that there were sort of themes or you know sort of similar response like tactics or strategies so there really is some stuff that you can consciously do to navigate the challenges which you know it's something that we're not taught right when we're growing up can be
0: learned wow so i'm so glad that you had that moment that you probably tapped into your dad's voice you know maybe it wasn't your voice maybe it was your dad's voice he was like was. So Right. yeah yeah. And from that moment forward, really channeling his perspective of how to live through this change, maybe, and just letting go of the expectation of what the life could have been with two twins that were perfect,
1: quote unquote, right? Right, yeah. And that's where a lot of our grief comes from. It comes from those expectations, right? To use your word, that those expectations, they don't end up, playing out the way we thought they would, or, you know, that what we thought our lives would be just, it doesn't turn out that way. And so I think there's a lot of people that go through that kind of realization. And it's kind of like the image you have of yourself has to, has to sort of keep up as well. When I say that, you know, I'm a special needs mom now, that's something I had no experience with. I mean, I didn't even have experience being a mother. And so I'm a different kind of mother. I belong to a different club, right? I had to get used to what that looked like and what that felt like and what that meant. And it's very different. And part of the role that I sort of took on was a role of advocate for my daughter, but not just her, for kids with special needs or differences in the school system in general. So I really took that on. And I was not like any kind of activist, you know, before I had them, but I really took that seriously because I saw there was some sort of opportunities for improvement, shall we say, in the school system. Yeah, so, for sure. Well, you were like yeah. literally witnessing it
0: in your own household because I'm sure both of your daughters were yeah. being
1: treated very differently. Yeah. To- and, it, and plus that was, you know, I mean, they're 22 now. So like a lot's sort of improved, mm-hmm. but that is something that, I found helpful for me too. I mean, obviously it helped her and and, it'll help other kids that I happen to impact, but it also helped me because it gave me somewhere to put my, I want to do something, right? Because it's a very powerless feeling when you get that diagnosis or when you realize those expectations are not going to be met, whatever they are, you feel you have no control. And so- if you can find something that can help you feel that you are, you know, quote unquote, doing something mm-hmm. that I found really, really helped me for sure as well. You know, it's almost like those people that give a hospital, you know, $10 million and they build a wing in the memory of a loved one. So, you know, they're doing that, not just because they have the money to do that, they're doing that because that makes them feel good. It gives them that sort of place to put all their love for that person that they lost. So, if you ever see a wing of a hospital named after Quinn, you'll know that I somehow I got 10 million dollars somewhere. So, I'll just...
0: <gasps> Sounds good. Well, maybe they're gonna, for that, will ya? Maybe that money's going to be coming from the sale of your new book. <laughs> We're going to talk about the book in a second, but I just want to kind of circle back and ask you, from what I teased out of this conversation, there was definitely some blessings that came out of your situation. And one was your decision to control your own thoughts and actions. And second, removing the comparison and letting go of the expectation of what life could have been and just enjoying the life that you have with your daughter. And then the last one, channeling that energy into something so that you do not feel hopeless. Yeah. What else would you say was a tool in your toolkit that might help other parents out there right now who may be just learning about their child's diagnosis or are in year one, two, five. What, anything, what else do you have to share with them that they could use as a tool to help them through this season, which is a long season? of a special needs mom?
1: Yeah, it's, especially at the beginning, it is challenging. I really found that one of the tools that I learned from my father and it was partly learned and partly genetic was to laugh and not so much making light of something, but I call it finding the humor in a situation. You know, my daughter has steel rods in her back So she has spinal fusion. Her spine was fused with these rods. And one of them is made of titanium. So whenever titanium comes on the radio, I say, Quinn, it's your song. And we sing it and she laughs. But spinal fusion surgery is not funny at all, right? I mean, it was, I don't know, 10 hours. We were the last parents sitting in the waiting room at SickKids. Like all the other parents had gone to the recovery room, dozens of them. We were the last ones left. It was like eight o'clock at night. And finally the surgeon came out and said, she's okay. Like there's nothing funny about that. But finding those humorous moments, you know, after the surgery, she was in this rehab facility for weeks and her dad and I took turns. We had to sleep on the floor beside her. Like, That's not funny either, but here I am laughing. But it was like we made like we made fun of it. Like we just told funny stories because we were on alternating nights and we just had this like weird pull out sort of chair thingy. And it was like sleeping on a rock, basically. But we just made light of it. Right. Because if you don't, obviously the alternative is not fun. Heavy and real dark and real. Yeah. Yeah. I take my humor seriously because it can seem irreverent you know, studies have shown that there's that, you know, what's called gallows humor. So, you know, first responders, people like that, that work with a lot of, you know, tragedy, they have to find humor in things. And so I sort of took that to heart and finding the funny and actually like laughing, laughing gets those chemicals going, those positive chemicals that are going to help you and help elevate your mood, even if it's just for a few minutes, right? So it's rather than not, look for those moments, watch those funny videos, like look for that humor. And I find that overall, it just sort of helps to elevate, you know, on a daily basis, basically. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Well, let's talk about your
0: new baby, your book baby. I Tell I us a little bit about more the book. painful to give birth to. <laughs> Well, I've never given birth to a human or a book, but I'm going to say they're probably
1: painful in very different ways, right? Yes. Yes. So, yeah, so tell us about the book. So it was sort of a little twinkle in my eye many years ago, and then I just sort of started writing down stories. And so my book is called Finding Your Hay, a crash course in braving grief and embracing joy. So finding your hay. So the hay, that word, comes from when my dad had the heart attack and his stroke. He had a heart attack a week before my wedding, and he was having it sort of during the day. And he went to my husband's stag, like he went to this and he was still like he was having this heart attack. I mean, because it's like a, a gradual thing. And he still went to the stag. And he finally said to my brother, you have to take me to the hospital. So he'd had a heart attack. He was in the hospital still when the wedding happened. So he didn't get to walk me down the aisle and we visited him. Anyway, still went on my honeymoon because he was recovering. Like it was a heart attack, right? And he was 46 and he was recovering well. The doctor said he's all good. Went on my honeymoon, no contact with anyone. It's a honeymoon. Came back and he'd had a stroke the day after I left. So got back and my mom told me and we called his hospital room and he answered and I could not understand a thing he said and I was just devastated because he is the most funny articulate smartest man I know and so the next morning when I got to go visit him finally I was walking down the hall in the hospital and all of a sudden he leaps out of his room in the middle of the hall like just arms outstretched and he goes Hey, like that. And it was the only word I understood him say that day. Like he could not talk, but he knew he had to like bring it right. And he did that. I mean, he did it for me for sure. You know, like he was like, don't worry. It's all gonna be okay. I'm okay. It's all gonna be okay. The effort that took like emotionally, physically for him to do that anyway it's just too much. But also I feel like he did that for himself too, that that hay was really for him. Like that was his attitude through his recovery. And I mean, it was a long recovery, you know, two years of speech therapy and all kinds of stuff going on. And so the book is called Finding Your Hay. When I realized I've got to find my hay, I've got to grab on to whatever is going to inspire me to be happy in this life and there's a tremendous amount of joy in my bunny rabbits, as I call them. And yeah, so that's, so the book is kind of sort of how to do that. I yeah. love it. What a great
0: nod to your dad. Yeah. And in a way for you to honor the life of your daughters, both of them, right. And help other people cope through their grief whatever it could be. And grief is very different for a lot of people. And it's not always about death. It could be grief of a life that you thought you were going to have
1: and didn't. Yeah. yeah. There's so much. I mean, divorce or losing your job or, you know, all of the above, right? So there's so much that, you know, so much challenge that we go through. You know, that's what was really cool when I interviewed these friends is that there's all these sort of similar themes that that we all, you know, came to quite like organically, actually. No one sort of sat down and read a book on how to grieve, none of us. But we sort of, you know, through these these discussions sort of came up with some really interesting things. And so the book is like a memoir, but with lots of other ideas thrown in. And some really good lessons, I'm sure. Excellent. Okay, Deborah, I just
0: want to acknowledge you for coming and sharing this story, for having those turning point many moments through your journey of motherhood and finding your hay (laughs) and and being the joy and the laughter and the fun that both of your daughters needed in a mom thank you excellent
1: anything else you want to share with everybody before we wrap up if anybody wants to buy the book just call me And I'll send it to you. Yeah, where can
0: people find you? Where do you like to hang out on social? What's what's
1: your platform of choice? So Instagram, I use my full name. So my maiden name is Covell, C-O-V-E-L-L. So my Instagram handle is Deborah L. Covell and the book will be available on Amazon very soon like literally in a week or two. Okay, so by time this episode airs,
0: it'll actually be out in the world. So Find Your Hay can be found on Amazon. Yes, it can. Excellent. Okay, well Deborah, thank you so much for coming and sharing, you know, your story. I know so many people will benefit from it because as we said, there's so many different kinds of special needs children out there and each of their experience is so different. And the experience of parenting a special needs kid is so unique, but at the same time, the same. Yeah. Right? Yes, So I know this will be helpful. So if you've enjoyed this episode uh, and this resonated with you, or if you know somebody who is going through something similar, share this episode with them. Let them hear it, and it just might help them figure out their own now what. So that is it for us today. Join us again next week for another Now What Wednesday story. Deborah, thank you so much for joining me, and uh, we'll see everybody real soon. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate it more than I can say. Did you love this episode of I Just Blank Now What?